Today I'll be reading The Opinion of the Court in Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County v. Talevsky. Justice Jackson delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. Justice Gorsuch filed a concurring opinion. Justice Barrett filed a concurring opinion in which Chief Justice Roberts joined. Justice Thomas filed a dissenting opinion. Justice Alito filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Thomas joined. The Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, FNHRA, or ACT, ensures that nursing homes that receive Medicaid funding respect and protect their residents' health, safety, and dignity. Provisions of the FNHRA refer to rights of nursing home residents to be free from unnecessary physical or chemical restraints and to be discharged or transferred only when certain preconditions are satisfied. This case is about these particular provisions and whether nursing home residents can seek to vindicate those FNHRA rights in court. Respondent Ivanka Talevsky maintains that she can enforce the rights these particular FNHRA provisions describe via 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, which, since the 1870s, has provided an express cause of action to any person deprived by someone acting under color of state law of any rights secured by the Constitution and laws. Petitioners insist that respondent is wrong about being able to rely on Section 1983 in this context, for two independent reasons. First, petitioners urge us to discard our long-standing recognition that Section 1983's unqualified reference to laws means what it says, and to rule instead that Section 1983 contains an implicit carve-out for laws that Congress enacts via its spending power, a holding that, according to petitioners, would mean that Section 1983 could not be used to enforce any rights the FNHRA purports to recognize. In the alternative, petitioners point to our established methods for determining whether a statutory provision creates a Section 1983 enforceable right, and maintain that these FNHRA provisions do not create rights that nursing home residents can enforce via Section 1983. We reject both propositions. Laws means laws, no less today than in the 1870s, and nothing in petitioners' appeal to Reconstruction-era contract law shows otherwise. Consequently, as we have previously held, Section 1983 can presumptively be used to enforce unambiguously conferred federal individual rights unless a private right of action under Section 1983 would thwart any enforcement mechanism that the rights-creating statute contains for protection of the rights it has created. We hold that the two FNHRA provisions at issue here do unambiguously create Section 1983 enforceable rights. And we discern no incompatibility between private enforcement under Section 1983 and the statutory scheme that Congress has devised 
for the protection of those rights. Accordingly, we affirm the lower court's judgment that Respondent's Section 1983 action can proceed in court. Part 1 In 2016, when Gorgi Tilevsky's dementia progressed to the point that his family members could no longer care for him, they placed him in Petitioner Valparaiso Care and Rehabilitation's VCR nursing home. When he entered VCR, Mr. Tilevsky could talk, feed himself, walk, socialize, and recognize his family. Later in 2016, however, Mr. Tilevsky's condition suddenly deteriorated. He became unable to eat on his own and began losing the ability to communicate in English, leaving him to rely primarily on Macedonian, his native language. VCR staff claimed this was dementia's natural progression, but Mr. Tilevsky's daughter suspected and then confirmed with outside physicians that VCR was chemically restraining Mr. Tilevsky with six powerful psychotropic medications. With the help of an outside neurologist, his medication was tapered down, and he began to regain the ability to feed himself. Around this time, the Indiana State Department of Health, Department, conducted its periodic inspection of VCR, and the Tilevskys filed a formal complaint with the inspectors regarding the chemical restraints. The problems did not end there. Toward the end of 2016, VCR began asserting that Mr. Tilevsky was harassing female residents and staff. Based on that claim, VCR began sending Mr. Tilevsky to a psychiatric hospital 90 minutes away for several days at a time. VCR readmitted Mr. Tilevsky the first two times it sent him away, but the third time, instead of accepting him back, VCR tried to force his permanent transfer to a dementia facility in Indianapolis. It executed these changed circumstances without first notifying Mr. Tilevsky or his family. The Tilevskys filed a complaint with the department regarding Mr. Tilevsky's forced transfer. While the complaint was pending, Mr. Tilevsky had to stay at another facility that was 90 minutes away from his family. Eventually, a department administrative law judge nullified VCR's attempted transfer of Mr. Tilevsky. Based on that determination, the Tilevskys endeavored to have Mr. Tilevsky returned to VCR, but VCR ignored the judge's decision and refused readmission. The Tilevskys complained again to the department, which later issued a report regarding the Tilevskys' complaints. Subsequently, Petitioner American Senior Communities LLC, ASC, which manages VCR, contacted Mr. Tilevsky's wife, Ivanka, to discuss the possibility of Mr. Tilevsky's return. At this point, however, Mr. Tilevsky had acclimated to his new home, and the Tilevskys feared retribution against him if he returned to VCR. So they opted to leave him in the new facility, which meant that every family visit required a three-hour round trip. In 2019, Mr. Tilevsky, through Ivanka, 
sued VCR, ASC, and Petitioner Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County, collectively HHC, under Revised Statute Section 1979, 42 U.S.C., Section 1983. The lawsuit claimed that HHC's treatment of Mr. Talevsky, in particular the use of chemical restraints and the persistent transfer attempts, had violated rights that the FNHRA guaranteed him as a nursing home resident. The district court granted HHC's subsequent motion to dismiss the complaint, reasoning that no plaintiff can enforce provisions of the FNHRA via Section 1983. The Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit reversed. It concluded that under this court's precedent, the relevant FNHRA provisions unambiguously confer individually enforceable rights on nursing home residents, making those rights presumptively enforceable via Section 1983. The Court of Appeals held further that the presumption had not been rebutted here because nothing in the FNHRA indicated congressional intent to foreclose Section 1983 enforcement of these rights. HHC filed a petition for certiorari, which we granted. For the reasons explained below, we affirm the Seventh Circuit's judgment. Part 2 Section A As relevant here, Section 1983 provides that every person who under color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of any state or territory or the District of Columbia subjects or causes to be subjected any citizen of the United States or other person within the jurisdiction thereof to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws, shall be liable to the party injured in an action at law, suit in equity, or other proper proceeding for redress. That is, any person within the jurisdiction of the United States may invoke this cause of action against any other person who, acting under color of state law, has deprived them of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws of the United States. We have been asked before to narrow the scope of this express authorization, i.e. to read laws to mean only civil rights or equal protection laws. We decline to do so, reasoning that a straightforward reading of the plain language of Section 1983 is required. That should have been no surprise, Congress attached no modifiers to the phrase, and laws. Since Thibodeau, we have crafted a test for determining whether a particular federal law actually secures rights for Section 1983 purposes, but we have not previously doubted that any federal law can do so. Section B. 1. HHC attempts to sow renewed doubt about Section 1983's textually unqualified sweep by proffering historical evidence. As background for our evaluation of the particulars of HHC's spending clause-based argument regarding Section 1983's meaning, 
a fuller picture of the relevant historical text is warranted. Before the Civil War, few direct federal protections for individual rights against state infringements existed. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments worked a sea change in this regard. Still, neither these Civil War amendments nor the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1866 successfully prevented post-bellum state actors from continuing to deprive American citizens of federally protected rights. In early 1871, a Senate Select Committee produced and distributed a report that ran hundreds of pages and recounted pervasive state-sanctioned lawlessness and violence against the freedmen and their white Republican allies. After reading the report, President Ulysses S. Grant implored Congress to act. It is against this backdrop that the 42nd Congress enacted, and President Grant signed, the Civil Rights Act of 1871. The first section of that statute, as reenacted in 1874, created the federal cause of action now codified as Section 1983. The plain language's lack of modifiers reflected the regrettable reality that state instrumentalities could not, or would not, fully protect federal rights. We have adhered to this understanding of Section 1983's operation. To guarantee the protection of federal rights, the Section 1983 remedy is, in all events, supplementary to any remedy any state might have. And we have consistently refused to read Section 1983's plain language to mean anything other than what it says. 2. We are not persuaded by HHC's argument, which Justice Thomas supports, that Talevsky cannot invoke Section 1983 to vindicate the rights the FNHRA provisions at issue here purport to recognize, because Congress seems to have enacted the FNHRA pursuant to the spending power recognized in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. HHC's argument generally proceeds as follows. Starting with our precedent regarding Congress's spending power, HHC begins by emphasizing our observation that federal legislation premised on that power is much in the nature of a contract because in return for federal funds, the states agree to comply with federally imposed conditions. HHC then seizes on the contract analogy to create a syllogism. It reasons that, one, any private party suing to enforce an obligation between federal and state governments that a spending clause statute creates is essentially a third-party beneficiary by which HHC means beneficiaries of rights created in any such statute, and two, under common law contract principles extent at the time that Congress enacted Section 1983, third-party beneficiaries were generally barred from suing to enforce contract obligations. Therefore, three, plaintiffs like Talevsky, a purported third-party beneficiary of the FNHRA, may not use Section 1983 
to do something that third-party beneficiaries of contracts generally could not do in the 1870s. The upshot for HHC is that spending clause statutes do not give rise to privately enforceable rights under Section 1983 because contracts were not generally enforceable by third-party beneficiaries at common law. On this basis alone, HHC thus, in effect, urges us to reject decades of precedent and to rewrite Section 1983's plain text to read laws unless those laws rest on the spending power. Two well-established principles applied here suffice to reject HHC's invitation to reimagine Congress's handiwork and our precedent interpreting it. First, our prior Section 1983 cases reference firmly rooted common law principles. We implement Congress's choices rather than remake them. Thus, we have reasoned that Congress's failure to displace firmly rooted common law principles generally indicates that it incorporated those established principles into Section 1983. Here, HHC's key common law plank, that third-party beneficiaries could not sue to enforce contractual obligations during the relevant time, is at a minimum contestable. Something more than ambiguous historical evidence is required before we will flatly overrule a number of major decisions of this court, as HHC essentially asks us to do here. Second, because there is no doubt that the cause of action created by Section 1983 is, and was always regarded as, a tort claim, HHC's particular focus on 1870s law governing third-party beneficiary suits in contract is, at the very least, perplexing. If there is a reason that the principles governing those suits should be read to displace the plain scope of Section 1983's species of tort liability, HHC has utterly failed to identify it. We have no doubt that HHC wishes Section 1983 said something else, but that is an appeal better directed to Congress. Hewing to Section 1983's text and history, not to mention our precedent and constitutional role, we reject HHC's request and reaffirm that laws in Section 1983 means what it says. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.